I want to start the teaching this evening with a quote from Peter Matheson. He's best known for the book The Snow Leopard, but this is a different book that he wrote. It's called At Play in the Field of the Lord. The quote goes like this. In the jungle, during one night in each month, the moths did not come to the lanterns. Through the dark reaches of the outer night, so it was said, they flew toward the full moon. And I wanted to share that quote in part because of the blessing of having that full moon on Tuesday night, on our opening night. It was like, there it was. Here we are coming into the darkest time of the year, going deeply inside of ourselves. And then there was that muse of the full moon. And for me, it was like a beacon just calling the theme of this retreat that we actually have to move through the black reaches of the outer night to reach the light. And we embrace those dark reaches of the outer night and we invite the light. So the teaching this evening of the seven factors of enlightenment is really an exploration of the full moon. These are qualities of awakening and they're available to us in, ex- in ordinary ways, in extraordinary ways. And we often have to move through many cycles of darkness, of purification, of the exact opposite of any one of these qualities in order to allow the conditions to manifest for these qualities to mature more and more and more and shine forth. So I want to begin the journey of this teaching, the seven factors, with going way back in time, back to the time of the Buddha. And so 2,555 years ago, give or take, at the time of the Buddha, there were a group of monastic practitioners. And you, you can imagine when you get the opportunity to be with a group of practitioners, maybe this group of practitioners, and everybody's so sincere and very ardent and really doing their practice each in their own way, and, and so too this community of monastics. And so it happened that at one point in their practice, one of the monastics, Mahakasapa was his name, got sick. And he got sick with an intestinal illness. Not fun. Uh, Sounded very, very extreme the way those intestinal illnesses can be. And so he was laid up in bed. And the Buddha heard that he was laid up in bed and he came out of his meditation and came to visit Mahakasapa to see how he was doing, to offer some solace, some support. And this is what he asked him. He said, well, Kasapa, how is it with you? Are you bearing up? Are you enduring? Do your pains lessen or increase? Are there signs of your pains lessening and not increasing? It's very kind things to ask, very engaged in his process of illness, and really not so different from what we're asking you in the group check-ins. How are you doing? Is the suffering increasing or decreasing? Are you bearing up? Are you enduring? What's the attitude of mind that you're meeting this experience with? So Mahakasapa's answer 
No, teacher, I am not bearing up. I am not enduring. The pain is very great. There is a sign not of the pain's lessening, but of their increasing. And we've all had moments like this. Some of us have had them on this retreat. We've all had them in a life. It's like, it's not going well. I wish it would go better. And instead, it's going worse. It's increasing. And so, you know, this is one of these moments of truth. How are we going to meet when it gets harder and then harder? And we're hoping that the pains will decrease, whether it's the mind, the heart, the body, but they're increasing. And you acknowledge it to somebody else and speak that truth. So how did the Buddha respond, being the Buddha? He said, my friend Kasapa, there are these seven factors of enlightened of enlightenment. They are well expounded by me, cultivated and much developed by me. And when cultivated and much developed, they are conducive to full realization, perfect wisdom, to Nibbana, or awakening. What are the seven? And then he goes through them. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. They're well expounded. They're cultivated. They've been developed, my being. And when they're cultivated and developed by you, they might lead to full realization, to full awakening. So you can imagine being laid up in bed, and some of us, of course, here are sick. So um, there's a teaching for you. I hope it provides some solace. And if it doesn't, that wouldn't be a tremendous surprise. It's kind of a surprising answer. Uh, in our modern-day minds. So what did Mahakasapa say? What did he do when he received this teaching? Venerable Mahakasapa, rejoicing, welcomed the utterances of the Buddha. And then the Venerable Mahakasapa arose from that illness. Then and there, that ailment of Venerable Mahakasapa vanished. The end. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So... That sounds like a faith healing. And in fact, in in every spiritual tradition, in every religion, there are uh, documented cases of faith healings. So let's flesh it out so that it really lands for us here and now. I would very much imagine that it wasn't just the shifting of Mahakasapa's mind. Of course, when we shift out of tremendous struggle, then there's a lot of energy available for healing of body and mind. And I'm sure that there was some influence in that way. I'm also reasonably sure that Venerable Mahakasapa was getting some very, very good care filled with loving kindness. Why do I think this? Firstly, because the whole community was practicing loving kindness. And secondly, because there's a lot of other stories from the time of the Buddha of different practitioners getting ill and the importance of the practice of taking care of the ill in our community, in our family, taking care of ourselves when we're ill in a very on-the-ground practical way. So there was another teaching in particular, or a story, where there was a practitioner who was also quite ill, probably with a similar illness, and nobody was taking care of them. And they were just drowning in this illness, and the Buddha came by and said, how come nobody's taking care of this, this practitioner? And all the rest of the practitioners said, we're too busy meditating. (laughs) And the Buddha said, 
this is not correct practice. You know, the practice is to take care of the body, our bodies, others' bodies. So I imagine that Venerable Mahakasapa had some good support in a practical way as well. So there's the physical level that we're talking about, and there's also the um, mental level. And in a way, metaphorically, uh, we're all sick. And what we're really sick with is just the suchness of being human, living a life. So if we look at yet another teaching that kind of lays this out, it's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. First teaching that the Buddha gave after his awakening. And some of you are familiar with it and some of you aren't. And I'm just going to talk about it in a very simple way that applies to our practice instead of a whole Dharma talk with all the technicalities. If you know them, you can remember them. But if we're looking at illness and we're looking at healing and we're looking at awakening and freedom and this metaphor of illness, the first noble truth says it's not easy being a human being living a life. It's not easy. And when I first heard that, I was so reassured because I had this story that the difficulties that I had in my life at the time that I started to meditate, I had some low-level chronic pain, I had some deep pain in uh, my family system, Uh, you know, just kind of some developmental life stage pain. I started meditating when I was in my late teens. And to hear that, oh, it's not easy being a human being living a life and that I didn't do anything wrong, and there's nothing wrong with this scenario. It's just being a human being living a life. It includes things aren't always satisfactory, that things get stressful, and that we have pain. So without that understanding, we can really wallow in the illness of, how come it's not quite right? How come I don't feel good all the time? The second noble truth Why is it not easy to be a human being living a life? Simple way of talking about this second truth is it's not easy because we struggle. And we've been talking about this in the groups that I've been a part of all the way through. Something happens. And the important question is how much struggle? Or another way of asking the same question, is there a decrease in struggle? Is your pain increasing or decreasing? In terms of the second arrow. So, you know, we could also say that we're sick with these fires. We're sick with these fires of craving and clinging and all the ways we want to be somebody and not be somebody. We're sick with the fires of aversion and ill will, the I don't like it mind. We're sick with confusion. We get regular kind of bouts of doubt. Maybe that could be a new illness definition, a doubt attack instead of an indigestion attack think of it that way sometimes. It's, like, oh, it's a doubt attack, just like having you know, a coughing attack. So that's one side. You know, we've got this metaphorical illness. Um, but we're more than this illness. And part of the remembering of mindfulness, the wisdom quality in the remembering of mindfulness is, oh, we're more than this illness. We're more than the struggle. We're more than our beliefs about the world. So I was reflecting back on my early years here at Spirit Rock recently. And I was reflecting on a line that a teacher said that really resonated with me 
at that time. And what I've noticed about our teacher body is we all, we have, we kind of have these one liners that we like to say over and over again. And this one liner is from Jack Cornfield. And I've, I've checked about this and I hear that, you know, 20 years later, he still says this line with a lot of regularity. And it just made me smile every time I'd hear him say it. And it's this piece about the light. It's this piece about healing and waking up. He says, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. Because there's a third noble truth and a fourth noble truth. And a simple way of talking about the third noble truth is that peace is possible. This very life, not a different life, not a different body, not a different family. This one, peace is possible. And then the fourth noble truth being that there's a path. There's a path to peace. There's a path to freedom. And that we can cultivate it. We can cultivate tools. And we are. That's very much what we're doing here. So the seven factors of enlightenment If you got a handout, when you look at the handout, you will see that there are two headlines. One says calming factors, one says energizing factors. And then there's three qualities under each. And then there's a line. So I'm laying this out for those of you that didn't get a handout. And underneath that line is the quality of mindfulness, which really holds the other six qualities. So there's many ways of looking at this teaching and practicing with this teaching. This form is what I call the teeter-totter form because we're constantly balancing the energizing factors and the calming factors. And of course, balance is dynamic. If we freeze and try to get it right and then we've got it right for a minute and then we try to hold on, uh, that's not teeter-totter. So it's dynamic, it's always moving. Another way of looking at this very same set of seven qualities is a circle uh, that actually starts with mindfulness and then moves into investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and then re-begins again with a more mature mindfulness. And we just circle as the whole thing matures and grows and the awakening starts to shine forth. Yet another way of looking at this very same teaching is thematic Think of it as flavors. And we'll be looking at it that way tonight as well as the kind of teeter-totter model. And thematically what it means is you don't have to remember them all. But it's more, oh, what resonated for me tonight? Energy, that was new, that caught my attention. So what does that theme feel like when it's strong, when it's weak in practice? And tracking that way can be really helpful. So the energizing factors are an antidote to sluggishness. They're investigation, energy, and rapture or joy. And the calming factors are the antidote to restlessness and worry. And they are equanimity, concentration, and tranquility or calm. So right there, we've got two of the five hindrances that Donald mentioned last night. So we've got the sleepiness and the restlessness. And then, of course, I'm sure that we're still grappling with and dancing with the other three, 
which are the wanting mind, the aversive mind, and doubt. But these are definitely some skillful means and antidotes to these hindrances. And there's yet another teaching from the Buddha that talks about how to work with the energizing and the calming. Very much stating the obvious. So he's talking to a group of monastics and he says, when the mind is sluggish, that is the wrong time to cultivate the enlightenment factor of tranquility and of concentration and of equanimity. What is the reason a sluggish mind is hard to arouse by these factors? It's pretty obvious. And then he says, and what would be helpful? What would be helpful to, would be when we're sluggish to cultivate investigation, energy, and joy. And then vice versa, of course. So here's the interesting thing. What about mindfulness? At the end of that sutta when he says, try this, don't try this. Try this, don't try this. The punchline of the whole sutta is, he says, friends, mindfulness is always useful. It's like, oh, great. When in doubt, mindful. So what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness? What are we doing here? We keep referring to this thing. So the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And when we look at the translation of that, a couple interesting ways to look at it. One is this word in English, recollect, because we can also say it as recollect. So if we recollect, we're remembering. And it's been coming up in the groups of, you know, I just need to remember to be mindful. And I'm fond of saying, so here's one of my one-liners. Jack has, O nobly born, your sons and daughters of the Buddha. One of my one-liners is, it's pretty easy to be mindful. It's really hard to remember to be mindful. And it's like, that's that piece about recollect. Then we recollect. And we're recollecting the attention here. Another way of talking about mindfulness is appropriate attentiveness. And the word appropriate is important because it's naming the wisdom quality of mindfulness. Obviously, we can be mindful doing a very unskillful activity. But in terms of an awakening quality, mindfulness is appropriate attention, skillful attention. So I'll share with you my favorite quote right now about mindfulness from the Buddha. It's a wonderful invitation. See if you can take it in. He says, my friends, it's through the establishment of the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety, and awaken an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. Wow. That's quite an invitation there. Overcoming attachment and grief and abandoning clinging and anxiety. That's a big one for us. And not to mention awakening to an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. Yeah, sign me up for that. So that's my favorite quote right now, that mindfulness. So we have some energizing factors, the antidote to sluggishness. Starting with investigation. Another word for this quality might be discernment or curiosity. So this is an interesting point. How can curiosity be an enlightenment factor? 
we kind of have to look at this in three different ways, each of these qualities and how they work together because they do. We start with ordinary. You look at this list, you go, investigation, yeah, I know how to do that. Joy, I've felt that. Calm, sure, once in a while. Equanimity, well, maybe that's not so clear, but I have a sense of it. These are very ordinary qualities, and we all know how to concentrate. Look at what we do with these screens. (laughs) So ordinary. Through the cultivation of these practices, these ordinary qualities of awakening become extraordinary, and they manifest differently and things are revealed. After more understanding, more maturity of these qualities has been revealed, then there's this whole other fascinating process of integration and digestion. And out of that integration and digestion, we then manifest these qualities with the extraordinary understanding in very ordinary ways. And nobody knows that there's anything special coming through. But what they do know is that they feel good being around us. If you look at the, um, the masters and the people of wisdom that you've known in your life, kind of reflect on that. Often very ordinary, but you just know there's something. So an ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. So curiosity, any one of those things, investigation. What are we investigating in this case? It's investigation of states, both inner and outer. And one of the things we can investigate in particular in our own practice is the on-the-ground experience of the Four Noble Truths living through us. So we're sitting in meditation, and the knee starts hurting, and we start to struggle with it. We're planning the doctor's appointment that's going to happen five minutes after the retreat, whatever. You know, I've done it. I'm sure you have too. And all of a sudden, there's just this realization, pain. And then there's this immediate understanding, ah, first noble truth, got a body, it's going to hurt. First noble truth often includes got a body, it's going to feel good sometimes. It's not going to last. Neither is the pain in its momentary way. I know sometimes pain does feel endless. So you start to see, ah, first noble truth. And then we notice, ah, Go back to the teaching from last night from Donald. Shot the second arrow, second noble truth, struggle. And then I think, hmm, how might I bring peace in the foreground of this experience? Is there a way I can shift the center of gravity and the attitude of the mind in this moment? What tools could I bring in from the fourth noble truth? Maybe coming back to a spirit of non-harming or basic integrity or more mindfulness or, ah, I really need some more concentration. I'll set my intention. These are all kind of tools of the fourth noble truth. So we can actually start to investigate it in our direct experience. Maybe that's too complicated. Maybe we've gotten too quiet already. It's too many thoughts. Another simple way of practicing with investigation is being curious about the process more than the content. So the content is me and my knee and the pain and the doctor and is he going to be available or is she going to be available? And the process is, oh, there's this set of sensations that are unpleasant that I can label pain. Uh, You know, another example, say we're feeling frustrated or feeling angry. A very simple practice that we'll actually do as a practice tomorrow, so I'll just lay it out this evening. 
you can try it on in your head, is an acronym. I like acronyms because they're easy to remember in moments of duress. And this particular acronym is RAIN. And RAIN stands for Recognize, Accept, Investigate, and Non-Identification. Another way I like to think of N is not take it so personal. So recognize, accept, investigate, not take it so personal. And so we can recognize this is happening. Ah, we've already moved into the process. The content's already moving towards the background. And then there's this question about what attitude of mind am I going to bring in? Could I bring in an A of acceptance? If I can't bring in an A of acceptance, can I bring in an A of acceptance about the lack of acceptance? (laughs) Sometimes I've had to take it out five or six rounds. Wow, anger's happening. Okay, recognize, got that one. Any acceptance? No, I hate this. I want it to go away. Can I accept the part that hates it? No, I hate the part that hates it. I just want to be calm, collected, and free. You know, well, can you accept the part that wants that? No, because I just want to not be interfering with things so much. And at some point, the acceptance gets revealed, (laughs) you know, out of exhaustion, if nothing else. In this case, with this practice of RAIN, we investigate in the body. So I say, ah, anger is happening. What sensations in the body tell me? I check my jaw, upper chest the hands, the fists, just check it, stay with it, let it unfold, let it speak to us at the process level. Um, we, know, we tend to know more about the content level. Yeah. You could probably each have a great story about when I get angry, I tend to think this. Know what happens in the body? And then can I not take it so personally throughout the whole process? Sometimes the not taking it so personally just happens organically through the rest of the process. Sometimes we have to remember. Just depends. So that's the quality of investigation. Then we have the quality of energy. So other words for energy, vigor, persistence, And it's a specific type of energy. It's the energy that fuels wise effort. So what is wise effort? It's really energy to support the cultivation of wholesome states and transform the unwholesome states. So there's four different pieces to this. We prevent the unhelpful states that haven't arisen yet. I think of that as preemptive medicine or preventative medicine. Let's say something unhelpful has arisen internally, externally. We can transform it. Let's say that we just have this intuition that we could cultivate something helpful, a mind state, a heart state that would be helpful in our practice. We can cultivate it. We don't have to wait and hope that it will come. If only I get my posture just right and everybody stops making noise in the hall and hopefully we can invite it now. And then when helpful qualities are available, we can maintain them, we can develop them, we can perfect them. So on the ground, examples of this unwholesome might be those five hindrances when they hinder us, the grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. When when we're in their grasp, they're not helpful. And the wholesome states, for example, are these seven factors, just to name a few. 
couple times during this retreat, Donald and John have referenced this metaphor of tuning the strings so that there's a beautiful tune and that that's a metaphor for practice. I thought I would tell you the whole story of that because it's an, it's an important practice story. And it's another story of a sick practitioner. But this practitioner is sick at heart. So where this teaching and the story took place is in the heartland of India, in a place called Rajgir. And there's, um, it's, it's very flat, but there's this one peak, and it's called Vulture's Peak. And I had the opportunity to go there for the first time in 2012. And it's very um, craggy and rocky, and it sort of looks like a vulture. You've got to stretch Use your imagination. But, you know, you could see that if it's this huge flat plain of India and then this craggy peak, okay, vulture's peak. So a lot of practice and a lot of teachings happened there. And this particular practitioner, his name was Venerable Sona, and he really wanted to wake up. He was going for it. And so he was very ardent in his practice. It was time for him to do walking meditation. And like many practitioners at that time in India, he was walking barefoot. And like I said, I saw this peak and I actually hiked on this peak. It's quite, the rocks are sharp. And I would imagine they were even sharper back 2,500 and something years ago, although of course I don't know that. So he's walking barefoot and he's walking and he's walking. And you know how when you're trying really, really hard in your practice, everything just kind of feels like it's bearing down? So he's doing walking meditation, barefoot, you know, rocky. His feet start bleeding and he just kind of keeps going and slogging along and I'm never going to get free. And finally he just gives up and he kind of goes off into, there's a lot of caves up there. He kind of goes off into a little cave and just, I can imagine him sulking. I'll never get free. I'll never wake up. It's probably happened to some of us in moments. certainly happened to me. So the Buddha hears about this, he goes, and I can imagine him going, uh-oh, you know, one of my young pups just bit the dust. And <laughs> then I imagine him, you know, coming to give some support to Venerable Sona. And he says, you know, Venerable Sona, are you, are you going to be able to continue your practice? And Venerable Sona says, no, no, I can't. I can't go on. You know, I'm, I'm just never, I give up. I'm never going to get free. And the Buddha says to him, <coughs> Well, Venerable Sona, before you were a monastic in your householder life, um, weren't you a musician? Didn't you craft, um, you know, musical instruments? And Venerable Sona said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. And musical instruments that had strings. And so the Buddha said, well, let's use a metaphor for your practice. When you were tuning your lute, your musical instrument, when the strings were too tight, what would happen? And Venerable Sona said, well, they would break. And if he didn't have a break in his practice, I don't know what he had. The Buddha said, just so, just so, the strings would break. And and when you would tune them too loose, what would happen? And Venerable Sona said, well, it just didn't resonate. You know, it's too loose. It didn't sound good. I I couldn't harmonize it. Buddha said, just so, just so. He said, just like that in the practice, we want to make it not too tight, in parentheses, you know, not pushing too hard, not too much uh, 
We call it type A these, these days. And not too loose. And when you find that balance, then freedom will visit you. Then freedom will visit you. And so because he was getting a pep talk by the Buddha, Venerable Sona was able to revive and continue his walking meditation practice. And as the story goes, he actually reached a complete awakening. So we can take heart in that. And, you know, it's not cheating to have the the Buddha or somebody wise in your life that you know who even isn't here just give you a pep talk. You could listen up for that when things are really hard and you've just bit the dust. But there's an interesting postscript to the sutta. As I was thinking about all the different ways to practice it. And this summer, I had the opportunity to go to an international Buddhist teachers conference. We have a lot of those. And (laughs) this particular one was special in the sense that all of the teachers that were there, and they represented every major school of Buddhism. And they were all under the age of 50 years old. So we called this a next-gen international Buddhist teachers conference. And so that was wonderful for us to gather together in community and talk about issues that are particular to those of us who are of our generation and how we're going to support the transition of the founding teacher generation into more ease in their later years and and taking on those responsibilities. So there's a lot of very interesting conversations going on. And the very last night of this conference, we had an event that we called a community share. And basically that was a no talent talent show. And so we had skits and, you know, the most exciting thing of the evening was we took the three major schools of Buddhism and we, um, we took individuals from each school to represent that school and we got these large cushions, they're called zabotons, and we put them in a row and we had a race to see which school would win scooting across the floor on their zabotan. You know? <laughs> And you wouldn't believe the cheering and and the guesses about who would, which school would win. And it was hysterical. So community share. At the end of the night, we had some music from an abbot of a small Zen center in the Midwest. And he's a professional jazz musician as well as the abbot of a Zen center. And so he got out his guitar and he hadn't played it the whole conference And so he got ready to play and he just, you know, tested it out a little bit. And man, the strings were so tight. What happened was my body just completely contracted against it. It was so tight that I had a somatic resonance. And he started laughing. And of course, because we were all Dharma practitioners there, he could make this joke. And so he looked up and he smirked and he goes, the strings are too tight. And we all cracked up because we all knew this story from the time of the Buddha. All the schools knew this story. And so then he started uh, spoofing on it, and he made the strings too loose, and he started playing. And as I felt into my body while he was doing that, what it kind of felt like was, um, it felt kind of vague. I just couldn't land with the music, and it just didn't feel quite right. And I thought, wow, that's a very interesting doorway in both in our meditation and our daily life practice, 
with this energy to support wise effort. When it starts to feel too tight, oh, we can check the body. It starts to feel too loose, oh. So the body can be a wake-up call to if our energy isn't quite harmonized. Then, of course, he got it just right and played some really beautiful music. So mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy. And uh, joy in particular, joy that is rapturous. So you might not connect with the word rapture, but other words, happiness, bliss. So the mental quality of joy or rapture pervades both the body and the mind. And it carries also a quality of having interest in the object. And the interest in the object has an attitude that's friendly and non-judgmental. So the object could be a breath, a sound, a sensation, a taste, etc. This is from one of the commentaries. Defines this rapturous joy in the Pali, this pity as gladness, joy, joyfulness, mirth, merriment, exultation, exhilaration, and satisfaction of mind. Pretty good, right? It also ascribes to it the characteristic of endearing and the function of refreshing the body and the mind or pervading it with bliss and the manifestation is elation. So I thought that was interesting from the commentaries, the characteristic of endearing. There's something endearing about joy pervading the body and the mind, and it's refreshing. Four ways to cultivate joy, again, from some of the texts and the commentaries. The first two are recollections, interestingly. The first one is the recollection of the triple gem, So the triple gem is the refuge that we took the first night. The refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It's interesting to think about that. Um, As I said, you can can allow the Buddha to give you a pep talk while you're right here. Well, one way to allow the Buddha to give you a pep talk is just to call forth the awakeness in everyone who's ever had awakening of any kind. Just kind of take delight in that. It's like, yeah, maybe my practice is looking not so good right now, but... You know, I can be buoyed up. And there's a quality of buoying that is connected with this bliss, this joy. Or maybe it's the truth as we understand it and really taking delight in truth. In a world where truth isn't always valued, especially if it doesn't sell things, you know, that we really delight in truth, in the community taking delight in it. And some of you have been checking in about that. You you know, you see people and you're just like, ah, delight. So when it's delightful, let it be delightful and feel the uplift of the body and the mind. The second of the four ways is the recollection of virtue. Think of this as really treasuring our basic integrity. These five precepts of non-harming are a manifestation of that. But really loving that really drinking it in, and the joyfulness that when we're in alignment with our basic integrity, it feels good. And not the same kind of good as, I just want to feel good and everything will be okay. There's something much more steady to it. 
The third way of cultivating joy is the practice or even thinking about generosity. It's often said that if we are thinking about doing something generous, we can take delight in that, and then we do it, and we take delight in that, and then we reflect back on it, and we take delight in that. It's like, oh, three opportunities for delight, one thing. So you can look for it here. Both the ways that you're giving in very, very small ways that are important, and also the ways you're receiving. Don't miss the ways that you're receiving, that you're the beneficiary of that door being opened, or of somebody, you know, making sure that you have room to get the hand sanitizer, or, you know, somebody just walking nearby, and they just keep going, and you want to go crawl into your bed and have a cry, but they just keep lifting their foot and placing their foot, and it's so generous of them to keep going like that, and they don't even know they're being generous. I love thinking about that. Sometimes when I'm doing my practice, also when I'm moving my life, I just think about the fact that what I'm doing might not be for me. It might be for the person next to me. It might be much more important for them than it ever is for me what it is that I'm doing, especially if it's helpful. So there's always of taking delight. And one particular practice that I just want to highlight as a possibility for cultivating joy, uh, both in its bliss states and in its happiness states on this retreat, is the practice of gratitude. I've been so inspired by it this fall. I live up in the Sierra foothills. I live halfway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, here in the foothills of California. And there's a group of practitioners that have been training with me for the last year, and we meet once a month, and we've been studying some of the texts and practicing together. It's a wonderful group of people. I really thank them for their practice. And so this fall, we were practicing with a topic that is also awakened states of mind and heart. It's called the Brahma Viharas. And the Brahma Viharas mean divine abodes. And what they are are the loving kindness that we've been practicing here, plus compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so at one point in our journey through this fall of study and practice, we took a whole month to study and practice and cultivate joy in all of its manifestations. And all these groups spontaneously started practicing gratitude. And I was checking in with all of them individually, and I started to get these emails We've got this little group in Chico and we're practicing gratitude and now people that aren't even in this committed students group are also practicing it and we're sending emails back and forth and we're checking in and then all of a sudden it burst up in Sacramento and started spreading there and then Nevada City got involved and it was just like this spreading of enthusiasm about gratitude. Here's what's so funny. When I first mentioned gratitude to a lot of the individuals in this group, They went, yeah, sounds nice. Sometimes this stuff is so simple that we don't actually give ourselves the opportunity to cultivate it and then to drink it in. So you can check. Booing the mind or, or just as a way of cultivating joy. The end of a day, at the beginning of a day, thinking of three things that you're really, really grateful for and feeling that uplift fully great, great joy practice that doesn't just manifest in the mind. It also can manifest in the body. 
It's certainly not cheating to feel the bliss. So then we have the calming factors, the antidote to restlessness and worry. The first being tranquility. Sometimes it's called relaxation or calm or serenity. And again, it's of both body and mind. Here's an image for tranquility. Tranquility is compared to the happy experience of a weary walker who sits down under a tree in the shade or the cooling of a hot place by rain. So there's, there's some ease, there's some settling, there's some simplicity in that image. Three ways to cultivate calm from the commentaries. I think you'll like these. The first one, believe it or not, is comfortable weather. (laughs) So this is an interesting retreat to practice with that because for some, what's in the foreground is, oh, the sun's out. It's not raining. It's so beautiful. Apparently our, our rain call on the first night hasn't manifested yet. And for others, it's the cold, you know, and and the bracing against the cold. And then how to bring, um, you know, the coziness of our warm clothes and the warmth of the heart to the foreground against that bracing with the cold. But interesting to notice that if the weather isn't perceived as comfortable for us, then we're moving into maybe perhaps a bit of a challenge compared to if the weather was perfect according to us, whatever that means, in developing calm. So we can just notice, ah, if the weather is not perfect according to us, could we you know, bring in a little bit more calm with that? The second one is comfortable postures. Okay, so let's just make this clear. We're not here to develop perfect weather or perfect postures. We're just saying that when the posture is comfortable, For example, when I introduced the metta, I suggested that you might, during the metta practice, try to choose a posture that is at least reasonably comfortable because it's hard to be open and friendly and warm and have an attitude of goodwill when we're in excruciating physical pain. Same with this. It's it's hard not to be agitated on some level if there's a lot of pain in the posture. So a comfortable posture is supportive. It's never going to be perfect. First noble truth is still in play. Got a body. Not always going to be comfortable. And the third is the inclination towards the development of calm, of serenity, of tranquility in all postures. Sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Actually, in the commentaries, it also suggests we could cultivate joy in all postures. What if we laid down to go to bed tonight and just went, yeah, and felt that uplift instead of, oh. It's very different, right? So the ways that we can cultivate this calm. So how do we cultivate calm when we're consumed by anxiety and worry? Just just acknowledge this. One of the doorways in is actually mindfulness connected with the subtle body or the nervous system body. When we get anxious, the energy gets really frenetic. The mind tends to spew off a bunch of stories as a defensive response, and it doesn't feel too good in here. So if we bring mindfulness to the nervous system itself with the intention of settling, it might be something as simple as, okay, I'd love to bring in calm, but filled with anxiety. I'm recognizing the anxiety. Maybe we rein it. 
recognize anxiety, some acceptance, investigate a little bit in the body, not take it so personal, oh, still there. You know, and then we notice the, the attitude of mind that went, well, if I rained it, won't it go away? No, it's just going to do what it's going to do. If we don't interfere with it, it will pass through without interference, which is a really big deal. So it's still there. So what's the next course of response? The next course of response might be to return to the breath. That would be quite obvious, but with a little twist. And the little twist is, whether you're tracking it, the lip, the chest, the belly, mindfully we breathe in, mindfully breathe out. Then there's that pause between the breaths where it's so easy for the mind that is being really, really active because we're anxious and worrying to just kick off on another cycle. So instead of chasing that, we just feel our hands in our lap. Technically, that's called a touch point. In this case, it's actually cultivating more calm. It's allowing things to settle a little bit more. And then mindfully we breathe in and mindfully breathe out. And then take that moment to just feel the hands in the lap. Calm. And I can even use a note, calm. So then we have concentration. Other words, single-pointed, focused. And basically, if we're not focused, it's really hard to harness the full power of the mind. And there's a lot of ideas about concentration and what it is and what it means. I think it's important to mention that actually there are 40 different meditation objects for concentration training. The breath is only one of them. I say that to those of you that struggle throughout your meditation with the breath and then have the thought, I'm never going to have any concentration. There are many other trainings to develop a little more focus. One of them actually happens to be the loving kindness practice itself. We collect the attention around the phrases of well-wishing and that creates the focus and the concentration with these qualities of goodwill and friendliness, loving kindness. The other good news is that concentration is a natural state of mind that comes to the foreground when the system isn't startled or angry or confused. It just comes to the foreground, and we all know it in its ordinary aspect. And we start to develop in more and more extraordinary aspects according to our capacities and the causes and conditions that support us to practice. So when we're here, what we're doing in terms of training and concentration, is what would be called momentary concentration. We're really landing on that inhale. Great. Okay, I guess the great's extra. We're really landing on the exhale. Then we might feel our hands. Then the the attention really lands with, ah, thinking. Ah, a sensation. Ah, a sound. So it's landing fully, but it's momentary. Through that momentary concentration, it will start to gather and absorb. Once it starts to gather and absorb in its concentrated state, a lot of times people go, oh, great! You know, I have concentration. Yes, absolutely, wonderful. It's a wholesome state of mind. Then we get to train in concentration, which is really different than falling into concentration. They're both important, they're both needed, but they're different. So that's kind of how we're working with it here. 
tell you a simple story about concentration in the world. And this is a story about the polar photographer for National Geographic. He's a Canadian, and his name is Paul Nicklin. He's also a biologist, and he's also an activist. So Paul had the circumstances of growing up as one of just a few non-Inuit community members in a small village in northern, northern Canada. And so because he was raised there in a very isolated place in a very small town, his attitudes towards the natural world were very influenced from that. And so his training developed from that and he ended up becoming this great National Geographic photographer. Also because of his experience and what he's seen in his kind of travels and, you know, he has all these photographs of, you know, in the water with whales and, you know, right near a polar bear and, you know, really, really out there. His commitment is to, as he puts it, bridge the gap between scientific research and the public, showing how fragile and fast-changing habitats are profoundly affecting wildlife. Okay. So you might think, what does this have to do with concentration? I heard a talk that he gave, and he was talking about the most amazing experience he'd ever had being a photographer out um, very much in the wild. And the most amazing experience he ever had happened in the Antarctic Sea. And he spent four days filming and taking photos of this leopard seal. Now, leopard seals are huge and they're fierce, and believe me, this one wasn't tame. Okay. And so he's in the water with it, and he's quite afraid. You know, they, they can um, get violent when they're confused about another creature's intentions, him being the other creature in this case. So he was afraid when he got in the water, and he really had to work with the fear. And one of the ways he worked with the fear was bringing concentration to the foreground. Not so dissimilar as loving kindness being a concentration practice as an antidote to fear. And so I can almost imagine him sending this goodwill towards this leopard seal so that they could coexist together. The object, you know, could start to merge, right? And so what happens is this leopard seal gets really, first is very, very um, adversarial towards him. And it's quite unnerving. And then the leopard seal starts to do this very strange thing, which is he starts killing penguins in the water that are swimming around. And after she kills the penguins, she brings the penguins right up to him, right where he is with the camera, and like shoves this headless penguin in his face. Okay? So you think, wow, what are you going to do with that? And he didn't know what to do with that. What he did was he started, so I'm going to bring in the ordinary qualities of a bunch of these enlightenment factors, right? And he's highly trained as an athlete as well as a scientist and, you know, these qualities start to develop. I'm not saying he's enlightened. I'm just saying we're all developing them each in our own ways. So he starts to get really curious about the object, the seal. Fear falls into the background and he starts to have momentary concentration. He's totally focused. He can't be focused on his own kind of physical experience so much. There's a huge animal in the water and it's moving towards him and it's moving away and it's moving towards him, and it's moving away, and he's just aiming and sustaining his attention in this whole thing, absorbing into the object, which is the seal. 
Now, it may be a big leap for you to connect that with absorbing into the breath. It's coming and it's going, and it's coming and it's going. But that's a lot of what we're doing here, is we're making these tremendous leaps. What does the breath have to do with how we go out and manifest uh, skillful service and activism in the world? So concentration. Lastly, we have equanimity. And I'll give you my working definition of equanimity. It has five qualities. Equanimity is the balance of a non-reactive mind and heart grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. So the five qualities we've got there are balance, non-reactive, wisdom, caring, appropriate response. This is from the Zen teacher, Catherine Thanis, and it's something a student said to her. The student said to me, now I understand why it is so important to sit still and not move. When you move, you don't find out what you're moving away from. When you sit still, you can experience what you want to move away from. So talk about equanimity in ordinary and extraordinary ways. The ordinary way is one of my inspirations right now. And her name is Lema Pui. And Lema Pui was the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize winner. She's from Liberia and she's the co-founder of Women for Peace and Security Network of Africa. And ever since she won that prize, I've just been interested in her story. And so I was listening to a talk that she gave. And she's a social worker. She's a peace activist. And she had a very, very hard life herself. And she was telling this story about the girls she couldn't save. And so when she was doing some of her work a long time ago, different Uh, mothers would come to her, different young women would come to her. She talked about this one mother who brought her eight-year-old daughter to um, Lama, and she said, can you please take my daughter, can you please give her an education? Where I'm living in the village, there's no education. Take her, raise her, please get her an education. And at that time, Lama was raising her own family. And conditions were very, very hard, and there was no money, and she could not take in this child, and it broke her heart. And then she told another story about a young woman who was about 13 or 14 years old who came to her and said, I really want an education. Can I stay with you and enroll in the school nearby? I want an education. And at that time, Lema also couldn't take her in, and she had to turn her down. So here's the thing. It's not that Lema didn't feel it. One of the near misses of equanimity is indifference. And we'll think, oh, is equanimity mean we don't care? No. She felt it. She took it in. She felt the full resonance of it. And when she spoke the truth of no, as we sometimes have to do in the vicissitudes of life, we have to speak the truth of no, she did that with full heart and caring and balance. She also wasn't passive. Even though she had to say no, even though she couldn't show up for certain things, she kept going. She kept doing her work. She kept continuing her own education. 
And another myth of equanimity that's common, people say, well, is it passive? Does it mean if I'm equanimous, does it mean that I don't respond to the world? No, appropriate response is part of equanimity. She kept moving forward. She kept doing her work, so much so that she ended up with the Nobel Peace Prize. I feel like my working definition of equanimity is already a very much a run-on sentence. If I could add one more quality to it, it'd be spaciousness. And I really think that Lema exhibits that in this case. She talked about how even though she had to say no when the need was great, that her view was wide enough to see that what she was actually doing was unable to save the one in that case, but moving forward with all of her energy so that the next generation of young women could get an education and be supported to be mentored for the leadership that the country needs. That's the wide view of equanimity. When equanimity is subtle, there are four qualities that manifest. The first quality is that the second arrow stops shooting. And when it does stop, and even if it does shoot once or twice, we're not disturbed by it. The second quality is that we let go of extra delight in um, what? We let go of getting high off of our practice. When the insight comes or we feel really good, we don't grab on and try to freeze it and keep it forever. We just drink it in and let it through. The third quality when equanimity is subtle is that the mindfulness becomes continuous and effortless. And the wisdom that's associated with that lasts longer and longer. And the fourth quality is what's called equitable vision. And what it means is that we start to experience every piece of our human experience, the sounds, the sights, the smells, the thoughts, all the sense doors, is just having a non-reactivity. It's not so much about... I like it, I didn't like it. It's just a sound, it's just a thought, it's just creating me again. Simple, really simple. So closing quote from the Buddha. Whose minds are well developed in the factors of self-awakening, who delight in non-clinging, relinquishing grasping, resplendent, their struggle ended, they, in the world, are unbound. So that's what I have to offer for reflection. And very much thank you for your attention. I know that it's quite a teaching. And I enjoy thinking of you taking it in and using it however is helpful. Enjoy your walking meditation under the moon.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.